Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Okay, my friends, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 21. Would you please turn there in your Bibles? If you've been with us for a little while, you're probably thinking, we are always in Matthew chapter 21. We've been here for about five weeks now in Matthew chapter 21, but what are you going to do? Uh, it's good stuff, and we've been enjoying our time in the book. Uh, but again, Matthew chapter 21. Today we're going to come to one of the more well-known uh, parables of Jesus, uh, which is called the parable of the tenants. And I can't help but thinking of my friends, the tenants, uh, again and again throughout the week. So you were prayed for a lot this week, as uh, every time I read the passage, it reminded me of you. But the parable of the tenants is one of Jesus' more well-known parables. It's recorded for us in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, those are referred to, as you may recall, the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar Usually one of the accounts you find in one of them, you're going to find in another one, and from time to time you find them in all three. John is also a gospel, but John's a little bit different. It's unique compared to those first three. And so here we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and this parable is told here in Matthew 21. It's also found in Mark chapter 12, and it's found in Luke chapter 20. And if you go and you look at them, very similar, long, lengthy uh, dialogues that are recorded for us in those passages. Uh, And it seems as if it was a parable that made a big impact on uh, his listeners, Jesus' listeners, so much so that they all recorded it in their Gospels. And so what I want to do is read through uh, to the end of the chapter. So we're going to pick up in verse 33, and if you would please follow along in your Bible. It says, now hear another parable, Jesus speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower and leased it to the tenants. And he went, there you go again, and he went to another country. Now when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Verse 42. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So I'll remind you, We are in the midst of the final week of Jesus' earthly life. It seems that Jesus had, at least recorded for us, had gotten away from parables. And now, as he's back there in Jerusalem at the temple, teaching each day of the week, it seems he has returned to parables. And so we're going to start seeing more and more of them in these final chapters of the book of Matthew. We are, as I just said, we are in the temple. 
And Jesus has been going there each day. And the context is he's in the midst of an ongoing confrontation with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, whether that be the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees or who have, whom have you. He's already dealt with the corruption of the temple. We saw that where he overturned the, temple, uh, the uh, tables, the money changers, and so on. So he's already dealt with that. He's already called out these religious leaders that are now in front of him for having the appearance of life, but not having any life within them. And remember the story of the fig tree and so on. He's already been publicly challenged by the religious leaders. Who do you think you are? What gives you the authority to do the things you're doing? So there's a whole lot of tension that is going on there in Jesus' teaching times, just as side of the temple building there. And once again now in our passage, Jesus calls out the religious leaders for how far they have gone from God and from the things of God. And so in this parable, again starting in verse 33, it begins, Hear now, or hear another parable. Now, the hardness of heart of the religious leaders was preventing them from hearing what Jesus was saying when he spoke straight up to them. And there's different reasons why Jesus would use parables. Sometimes Jesus would speak in parables because people didn't understand what he was saying. And so it's as if he would say, hey, let me tell you a story to explain what I mean. And that's very helpful and very effective. Other times Jesus would speak in parables because the listeners refused to hear what he said straight up to them. And so he would tell it in a story which had such an obvious conclusion that unless you were so hard-hearted, you were going to miss, you wouldn't miss what he said. And so that's what he's doing here with these religious leaders. And he begins by telling them this story with such an obvious conclusion. It involves, as we see there, a landowner. And it says, and a landowner uh, planted a vineyard. The, the English Standard Version that we have up here, it speaks of the master of the house. So there's a master of a house, there's this landowner, and he plants a vineyard. Verse 33, he will then go on to outfit the vineyard. And he puts a protective fence around it. He puts a hedge around the vineyard, as we see there in the verse. He builds a wine press in the midst of the vineyard. He builds a tower there as well. Then notice in verse 33, he leased it to tenants. He leased it to some folks who would work the vineyard. Now, the scenario that Jesus paints was a common one in his day. It would have been familiar with his listeners. Remember, Jerusalem was... At this time, they were under Roman occupation. So the Jewish people lived there in Jerusalem, but it was the Romans, the Roman soldiers, that were in charge of Jerusalem. And we, they were, the Jews were, the subjects of that. Now, it wasn't uncommon for a relatively wealthy Jew to say, you know what, I'm getting out of here. And I'm going to go live somewhere in the wilderness where I don't have to constantly be under the thumb of the Roman soldiers. And what they would do then is they would take the land that they had there in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem and they would lease it out to some folks that couldn't buy a property but they could rent something. They would lease it out to them and then the landowner would go away. And the way that the, the person paid the rent each particular month or whatever it may be was the landowner would send a representative and say, look, just give me a portion of the produce that you made. And so you don't have to write me out a check, just give me a portion of the produce that was grown on that particular vineyard. And so that's what's going on here. So the, the listeners would, in their mind, they'd begin thinking of Bob and Steve that were rich guys that did this sort of thing, or they would think of themselves or friends of theirs that were renting off of some rich guy. In their mind, they'd be able to picture this. 
he, play, he paints a picture of a very plausible scenario, very immediately, or immediately familiar to his listeners. Now, the point of his parable would also have been immediately recognizable as well. So two weeks ago, we pointed out that uh, the Old Testament regularly would point to the fig tree as a picture of the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus brought up a parable or there was a scenario involving the fig tree, immediately the thinking was he's talking about Israel. The fig tree always represents Israel. And the way it sort of worked is the default understanding, if if a parable or story is being told about a fig tree, it's probably talking about Israel unless it very clearly is told that he's talking about something else. Well, also, in addition to the fig tree, Israel in the Bible, Old Testament, is regularly pictured as both a vine or a vineyard. So just like it's oftentimes depicted as a fig tree, it's oftentimes depicted as a vine or a vineyard. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it speaks of their vine comes from the vine of Sodom. It's speaking, read the context, about the nation of Israel. Psalm chapter 80, it says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Now, that's a psalm to the Lord, speaking of you brought a vine out of Egypt. The vine that was brought out of Egypt were the Jewish people when they came out of slavery. Jeremiah chapter 2 says, I planted you, speaking to Israel, read the context, I planted you as a choice vine. So again and again, Israel is depicted as a vine. Maybe no place more clearly than Isaiah chapter 5. And I wanted to read Isaiah chapter 5 at the beginning of the chapter to you. It says this, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not yet done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, verse 5, And I'm reading fast, I know. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I also will command the clouds that no rain fall upon it. Now, notice verse five or 7. Excuse me. It said, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, in this little picture that the Lord's speaking here with this prophet, this little picture It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So over and over again in the scripture, Israel is likened either to a vine or to a vineyard in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus begins this parable, and he says there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, Immediately in their mind, their default understanding is he's probably talking about the nation of Israel, which is indeed exactly what he is talking about. So let's go through the parable. Again, as we said, it begins with a landowner or the master of a house. The master of the house is the father. It's God the father. And as we just pointed out, the vineyard that God the father plants is the nation of Israel. In the parable around the vineyard is a fence. Some of your versions will say there was a hedge around there and the fence or the hedge around the vineyard represents where God made the Jewish people his people so the fence could specifically be speaking of the Abrahamic covenant where God called a polytheist of a fellow by the name of Abram and and said I am the, the one true God come follow me go to a place that I will show you and so it could be that covenant where God called out the Jewish people it could be the Mosaic law 
where God, through the um, prophet Moses, gave the law, do these things, I'll bless you. Don't do these things or you will be cursed or whatever. But whatever specifically it was, God designated the Jewish people as his people. He put a fence around them. He put a hedge around them, representing that they are his own. Now, the wine press in the midst of this vineyard speaks of this expectation that the vineyard would produce fruit. You wouldn't put a wine press in the midst of it if it wasn't going to produce grapes. And so it's an expectation that it would produce fruit. And then there's a tower. And the tower throughout the Psalms, it speaks of the Father's protection over his precious people. Now, the subject, really, of this particular parable are the tenants. And the tenants, as we see, are those that were charged with caring for the vineyard, with working the vineyard. And they were representative of the religious leaders of Israel. Notice it's not their vineyard, but they were entrusted to keep the vineyard and produce fruit in the vineyard and give that back to the landowner or the father. Now, the standard, I think I I pointed this out, I forget, but the standard operating procedure is rather than paying a check for rent, you would give a portion of the produce that was uh, produced. That was the rent that the tenants of a situation like this would have to pay. And so naturally, as Jesus points out, the landowner sends some representatives to collect the rent. End of the season, end of the month, whatever it may be, but he sends some representatives. And we we pick up in verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, the landowner sent his servants to the tenants to get its fruit. And the tenants took his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. And so he sent more servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So the master of the house is the father. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders of the nation. Now we're introduced to a third group of people, which are the servants. The servants that the landowner sends to collect the rent. And notice what it says in in verse uh, 35 there. It says that they were abused and beaten and even killed. Now, the history of the nation of Israel, if you go back and you read your Old Testament, and I would encourage you, the Old Testament is such a precious gift to us. And I think a lot of Christians kind of skip their reading and studying of the Old Testament thinking, well, I'll just get to the good stuff in the New Testament or whatever. The Old Testament is a precious gift. All Scripture is God-breathed. Dig into it. And one of the things that you will discover as you read sort of the narrative of the Old Testament is that Israel's spiritual condition was a condition of ups and downs. They would have periods of spiritual highs where things were going well, where God's name was being honored, where the nation was serving as the beacon of light that the nation was supposed to serve as in the midst of a dark and fallen world. They would have spiritual highs. And then they would have these spiritual lows where things were going poorly in the nation, where God's name was being dragged through the mud and the ways of the world around Israel were making their way into the nation of Israel and the life of the people of Israel. And so as you read the Old Testament, you see sort of this process with the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. And what you also take notice of as you read through there is more often than not, as the leaders went, so went the people. And so if the the leaders were askew, it wasn't very long until the people were as well. If the leader was corrupt and far from God, before long the people were corrupt and far from God. 
That's not a very encouraging thing for us to read. But here is what is encouraging. As the nation is going through these ups and downs through the Old Testament, each time where they come down into a down, you see God engaging the Jewish people and speaking to the, pe- to the people and coming to them. Every time the nation would go astray, God would work in such a way as to bring the people back to himself. And without exception, it began with a voice crying out in the wilderness, so to speak. It began with the voice of a prophet. And the prophet would come on the scene and he would call the people to repentance. Typically, they would rebel against that. They wouldn't listen. And it's not uncommon where God would have to bring the heavy hand of judgment on the Jewish people. And I think it's very important that we understand when God would bring his judgment, whether it was a foreign nation uh, like Assyria or Babylon or whatever it may be, or as a rival nation around them, or whatever it may be, when God would bring his judgment, it was never to, if you will, punish the people. You know, you've been a pain in my neck, now I'm going to be a pain in your rear, something like that. That wasn't God's intention. He wasn't just looking to inflict pain for the joy of inflicting pain. He would inflict the pain so that the people would come to their senses and repent. Now, I know this is stupid, and Jay was here first service, and he's going to be, it was stupid first service, it's stupid now, but I'm going to share it with you, because it, it speaks to me, and it helps me understand what I'm talking about, maybe it'll help you as well. There was a movie years ago, very high-quality drama, um, really good, good quality film. It was the movie Airplane. You may have seen the movie Airplane. And in the movie Airplane, you have... Uh, It's just a dumb movie. I wouldn't even recommend you go watch it, to be honest with you. Slapstick kind of thing. But in the movie, the the plane is about to go down, and there's somebody on the plane that's freaking out. Oh, my gosh, we're going to die. Oh, my gosh. Screaming, scaring everybody else. And somebody comes up, and they're they're standing by her chair there on the plane, and they're like, it's going to be okay, ma'am. Get yourself together. And they're trying to reason with her, and she won't get it together. And then the next person is in line, and they kind of take him by the shoulder, shake him a little bit, slap him on the side of the face. Then the next guy's in line with brass knuckles, next guy with a lead pipe, next guy with a gun or whatever. And they're all, what they want to do is, by this idea of slapping them on the face, is that little sting will kind of wake the person up out of the stupor that they have gotten themselves into. And that's what God used his judgment for in the Old Testament. Not to get even with them, not to, you know what, I'm mad at you and I want you to feel what I'm feeling or anything like that, but to wake them up. He would bring judgment there. And he would send his prophets to the Jewish people. And so in our parable this morning, the servants that are spoken of as going to collect the rent, the servants represent God's prophets sent to Israel throughout its history to call the people back to God. So when the people forsook the Lord and they began to worship and serve foreign gods and they got themselves involved in all sorts of idolatrous practices, Rather than God calling down fire on them, instead he would send his prophets to them to call the people back to himself. And so you look through your Old Testament, and he would send Joel, the prophet, to them, or Amos, or Hosea, or Isaiah, or Micaiah, or Nahum, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Obadiah, or Malachi, and a bunch of other people he would send to them because repeatedly they were having these ups and downs. And the response of the Jewish people almost always initially, and particularly of the religious leaders, was to reject the prophets. And so historically, we learned some things about how the Jews treated the prophets when they came to them. 
Historically, we learn that Ezekiel was killed by the chief of the Jews. We learn that the prophet Amos was tortured by the chief priest of Bethel. Habakkuk was stoned to death. Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into a pit so that he could starve to death and die. Isaiah was sawed in two. And these are things that were happening to the prophets, not at the hands of some foreign empires, but these were things that were happening to the prophets at the hands of the Jewish people and the other Jewish leaders. And so just as Jesus depicts in the parable, when God sent his servants, the prophets, to Israel, they responded so often by stoning them and by killing them, beating them and killing them. Now Jesus continues in verse 37. He says, finally, the landowner, the master, sent his son to them, saying, of course they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And so with the repeated rejection of the tenants that were sent to collect the rent, the landowner now decides, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son. Interesting. In fact, just the opposite happens. Instead of surely respecting the son, they see this as their golden opportunity to once and for all throw off the meddling landowner. And rather than respecting the son, they instead kill the son and they seize the son's inheritance. They seize the land. Now, the the picture Jesus is painting with this parable is of a landowner that has every right to collect his rent. It's his land. It was part of the agreement. You can live on it, but you have to pay me a portion of the crops and so on. He has every right to collect it. He has proven himself to be most patient, even after repeated attempts to collect the money and the response of the people there. He has shown himself to be most patient. And we would have expected that he would have done something by now. But despite his kindness, despite his generosity, despite the chance upon chance upon chance that he gives them, they, they rebel again and again and again. And even this last time, they rebel. Because what these tenants have done is convince themselves that no one has a right, not even the landowner has a right to say anything about them, to exercise any authority over them even to the point they reject, even to the point of murdering the precious son of the landowner. Now, as I pointed out, when Jesus told a parable like this, he brought his listeners to such an obvious conclusion that you would have to be super hard-hearted not to see the conclusion. And so notice what Jesus does. He kind of wraps it all up with a question, and he says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? When the landowner discovers that they even murdered his son, what will he do? Well, he'll round up an army, an army of men to go there to Jerusalem to seize the vineyard back from the tenants who have wrongfully taken it from him. That's like an obvious conclusion. Notice those that are talking to Jesus, they respond quickly to his question, and they said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And he'll rent out the vineyard to someone else, to other tenants, who will give him the fruit in their season. Notice what the listeners do. They call the tenants here, they call them wretches. They say that they're deserving of a miserable death. Is there anyone here that would would disagree with that conclusion? 
Uh, some of you may be pacifist or whatever, and it sounds harsh or whatever it may be. But this seems like a very logical conclusion. If the people are going to respond that day, that he has to take it that way, he's got to take it to another level here. Now, who does the son, don't answer this, the first group did. You, in your mind, answer it here. But who does the son represent in the parable? The vineyard, I've got an answer over there. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. The hedge represents God's covenant with his people, that special and distinct relationship that he initiated and desired to enjoy with the Jewish people. The tenants, we said, represent the religious leaders of the nation, those who were charged with leading the people and serving as sort of a go-between between heaven and earth. That's the tenants there, the religious leaders. And as we just saw, the servants represent God's holy prophets who were repeatedly sent to the nation of Israel to bring them back to themselves. But again, who does the Son represent? Well, the Son represents Jesus himself. You know, we have a a little joke in the Downs family if we're talking about the things of God. And we're very spiritual. We always talk about the things of God, as you can imagine. But if we're talking about the things of God and the kids don't know the answer, we say youth group answer. And then they say, Jesus, right, you know, because Jesus is always the answer to the youth group question. And so who does the Son represent, friends? Jesus, thank you. Thank you very much. Jesus is the Father's final word on this subject. After a long line of attempts to reach the hearts of the Jewish people and the minds of the Jewish people, he has now sent his final word on the subject, his son. I really like how I think this connects with the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It's very interesting. If you look at the book of Hebrews, grab yourself a parallel Bible. You can bring it up on your computer here, where it gives you all the different versions or many of the different versions and how they word Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, and that center phrase there where it says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, you'll notice in the many different English versions that are out there, it's worded a little bit different in every one. Usually, there's so much similarity between the way the NIV does it, the King James said it, maybe the ESV or the New King James, there's a lot of similarity, and it's basically the same set of words, maybe the order changed slightly. But this particular phrase is somewhat different in each version. And I think it speaks to the fact of how difficult it is to communicate what the Greek said with that particular verse. Because the Greek words it something like this, in these last days he has spoken to us in son. Well, that doesn't really make sense. Like, in son, what does that mean? It means by his son. It means through his son. Oh, okay, I get it. Now, if I were to word it this way, in these last days he has spoken to us in English, then that would make sense. Oh, you mean he spoke to them in the language of English as opposed to French or Spanish or something like that. And I think what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say is that God's final word on this subject was communicated to us in the language of Jesus Christ. These last days he has spoken to us in Jesus, so to speak. And surely they would respect Jesus when Jesus came. And of course we know that just as the tenants rejected the son in the parable, even so the religious leaders and the chief priest and the elders in Jesus' day refused to receive Jesus as God's long-awaited Messiah. And as the tenants sought to throw off the perceived chains 
that bound them to submit to God in his ways, even so, the religious leaders rejected Christ. And as we will see in just a few short days as we get to it in our study of Matthew, they would ultimately arrest and crucify Christ, or at least put forth that he should be. And so further making his point in the parable, Jesus adds in verse 42, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures? Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm pretty sure that the response of the chief priest and the religious leaders was, have we never read the scriptures? You see, because the chief priests and religious leaders, they were the expert on the scriptures. If anyone had read the Bible, it was these people. If anyone knew the Bible and had the right to speak about what the Bible teaches and so on, it was the religious leaders. And yet Jesus says to them, haven't you read in the Bible? Haven't you even read the Bible where it says this and that? These are fighting words. This is where, you know, if they were in high school, kids would be like, ooh, no, we didn't, you know, something like that. That's what's going on here where Jesus calls them out. They may know that Bible, but they don't know that Bible. Does that make sense? They haven't, I know, exactly, Dominic, it doesn't. Older people know what I'm talking about. But they may know it in their head, but they don't know it in their hearts. Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Then he goes on and he quotes to them from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Now remember the context. He's sitting there in the temple. Again, remember the temple had a big building and then it had a bunch of porches and stuff on the side. He's sitting there at one of those porches teaching anyone who has gathered to him, disciples that have gathered. We also know that religious leaders have gathered to challenge him. There's a confrontation that is going on there between Jesus and those religious leaders. And Jesus quotes to the religious leaders Psalm 118. Specifically, he quotes verses 22 and 23, almost word for word what we have recorded for us in the book of Matthew. Again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what's interesting, I think, to note is this, that Psalm 118, it was a well-known psalm in that day. It's what was referred to as a messianic psalm. Uh, A few days earlier, we talked about the triumphal entry into the city. And Jesus sat on a donkey, and I pointed out that unmistakably, that was from the book of Zechariah. That was a messianic prophecy. The people were expecting that one day their king would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's called a messianic prophecy. Well, Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. And if you go back to, and Jesus references it, if you go back to that triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, you recall that the people were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now there's two phrases in there and a key word. That phrase, the son of David, was a phrase that applied to the Messiah. The Jewish people knew that. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a messianic phrase applied to the Messiah. And the Jewish people knew that. And then they throw in this word, Hosanna, to the the son of David. And we looked at, when we were studying this, that Hosanna means save us now. I want to draw your attention to another place in Psalm 118, this messianic psalm that Jesus points out in this confrontation with the Jewish leaders. And this is a few verses later than what he's quoted to us. In Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, this is how the psalm reads. The messianic psalm reads, 
Save us, we pray, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see how similar what the people are chanting in Jesus' day and what the psalmist wrote? The words are nearly identical. And again, it was known to be a messianic psalm, a psalm that spoke of the coming Messiah. And so just as Jesus was unequivocally making a statement when he climbed up on top of that donkey and rode into the city, he knew what people were going to think about him, that he was claiming to be the Messiah, and he had no problem with that. Well, just as he was making an unequivocal statement, so too were the Jewish people standing on the sideline of that parade and crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. They were acknowledging that he was the Messiah. You may recall when we were looking at Palm Sunday, what we pointed out that the religious leaders, Luke 19 tells us, that the religious leaders are taking this all in. They're shocked. And they said, Rabbi, command your disciples to stop. They're claiming you're the Messiah. Clearly you can't be. Make them stop. And Jesus doesn't make them stop. You see, what's going on with the religious leaders is they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus could be the Messiah. Rather than sit there and say, you know what, maybe we missed something. Maybe this guy really is the Messiah. Maybe we should rethink this. They've already determined, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. And we're casting him off. And so here you have Jesus quoting a familiar messianic psalm, and he applies it to himself. He becomes the stone in the story. He says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Some versions say has become the capstone. Now, a cornerstone is different from a capstone, but both of those are significant stones in the building. And so there's a little discrepancy as to what is being spoken of, but nonetheless, Jesus compares himself to that significant stone. Now, there's a Jewish tradition. It's recorded in what are called the Jewish Midrashes. Now, the Midrash were highly respected commentaries on the Old Testament written by the Jewish rabbis. And what began to develop over time as, you know, people would read their Bibles. Maybe you do this. You read your Bible, and you come across a verse, and you don't quite know what it means. And so you get yourself a commentary, and you read the commentary. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. Now I understand. And then you go back to your Bible. You've understood. Well, even I think Christians do this today. Some, a lot of us, we have, like, uh, little notes at the bottom of our Bibles, study Bibles. And many of us will skip down to the bottom of the notes and just read those. And take those notes as Bible, whatever it may be. Instead of digging into the Word, trying to think it through, looking at cross-references, and then if we're completely stuck, we'll say, all right, I need a little hint here. And then we go to the different commentaries. We're like, okay, that makes sense, and we think about it some more. Well, what began to happen amongst the Jewish people is they took their Bibles, and they put them aside, and they say, why do all the work of trying to figure that out? Let me just read what the commentaries say. And so the Midrashes became so significant, it's almost as if they became equal with Scripture. And they're not Scripture, but it is interesting historically to read through what some of the rabbis and so on had to say. And there was a Jewish tradition that is a co- it's provided for us in commentary to Psalm 118. And the Jewish tradition is this, that during the time of Solomon's temple, that there was a stone that was brought to the Temple Mount area that didn't seem to fit the building, and it was rejected. Let me go back a little bit and explain. First Kings chapter 6. Now, this is Bible. 
First Kings chapter 6, when Solomon was receiving instructions about building the temple, the location was determined and so on, and he was given these instructions, verse 7 of chapter 6, when the temple was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool or iron was heard in the house while it was being built. And so he was given these instructions, no, no hammer, no axe, no, uh, nothing to cut the stones up there. We don't want the work to be done on the mountain other than taking the rocks and putting them in place. All the quarrying and stuff has to be done somewhere else, according to the scriptures. And what the Jewish Midrashes tell us is that one of those stones, I don't think of a small little stone, one of those big blocks. If you go to Israel and you see sort of the Temple Mount wall, there you get an idea of the size of the stones. There's actually a whole bunch of stones that are just to the side of, uh, you see on TV, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, where the Jewish men and women, they'll go and they'll pray at the wall, they'll put little pieces of paper in the wall. That's not a temple wall, that's a temple mount wall. So when Herod was in charge of things a thousand years or so after Solomon, he decided to enlarge the Temple Mount area to flatten the Temple Mount area. He didn't do anything really with the building itself. The building was already there from Solomon. It fell into disrepair. They cleaned it up. But what he did was took care of the mount area. And he leveled off this mount. And to do that, he had to put these big walls up to retain it. Well, if you go to Israel, you can walk now. It's all been excavated. You can see these Temple Mount walls that are there. The Jews pray at some of those Temple Mount walls. Uh, and so on, and there's this little pathway, uh, which is really an interesting part of the trip, where there are these huge rocks, and what they're told to us, what we are told, and we, I assume we believe, is that these were from the original temple, or Herod's temple, and there was an explosion because of a fire, and so on, and that they came, and they fell in that particular place. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but you get an idea of the size of these stones. We're not talking about a brick, there are some stones in the Temple Mount wall that are the size of school buses, enormous, okay? And so these things were quarried elsewhere and brought to the Temple Mount area, brought up the hills here. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing uh, to consider how it was done. And what the tradition is, what the story is, is that there was a particular stone that was brought, block that was brought, and, you know, a bunch are delivered on that particular day, and they're looking at it, and they're, you know, kind of turning their head in different directions thinking, I don't know where this stone fits. It doesn't seem to make place. And they're calling people in and getting advisors. And finally they decide, well, you know what, maybe it was delivered by mistake. Maybe it was supposed to go somewhere else or maybe it was a leftover or whatever. And they take the stone and what the tradition tells us is they push it down the mount there, Mount Moriah, and it ends up there in the Kidron Valley. And the weeds grow around it and so on. And they go on with the rest of the building. And so then they continue to build the temple and all of these things, finally coming to the end here and noticing there's one stone missing, a capstone. Remember the word is either cornerstone or capstone, that a capstone is missing. And one of the guys kind of tilts his head and he says, you know, that looks a lot like the shape of the stone that we discarded a little while ago. And sure enough, they go down, they get that stone, they bring it up on the temple, they put it in place, and it's the exact stone. And therefore, the psalm, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, has become the capstone. Now, whether or not that story is true or not, it's just a tradition or what, the Scripture verse is in the Scripture, and Jesus applies it to himself. He applies Psalm 118 to himself, declaring that in the same way that the tenants in the parable, rejected the son, 
so too would he be rejected. The Son of God would be rejected, he would be built, beaten, and he would be killed by the very ones that God had entrusted to keep the vineyard. Now again, throughout the Old Testament, God had been working from the beginning of time, from the time that Adam and Eve fell to the time that he called Abraham to be a separate people to himself to when he delivered the law to Moses, to the building of the temple, to all of the sacrifices which look forward to the great sacrifice. Through all of that, God had a plan to redeem sinful humanity. And he entrusted that plan to the Jewish people and specifically to the Jewish leaders. They were to be the champions heralding God's name and God's work to prepare all nations for the coming of a good and merciful king. And sadly, the Jewish leaders shirked that responsibility, and instead they rejected the very king that they were entrusted with proclaiming. And yet we know, in hindsight, looking back, even in that, God's designs were being accomplished and his purposes were being fulfilled. Even in the rejection of his son by this people, that God nonetheless fulfilled his purposes. He took their sin, he took their rejection of his Messiah, and as it says in the book of Isaiah, he used the chastisement of his son, the chastisement that came against him, to bring you and I peace. And as it says in Isaiah 53, truly by his wounds, you and I are healed of our sin. Let me read Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, all, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is it any wonder why then, The psalmist, after speaking of the rejection of God's Son, the psalmist would add the words, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Because indeed it is how God accomplished his purposes despite their response. Uh, Matthew 21, 43 continues, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. So again, drawing his parable to an almost obvious conclusion, conclusion, Jesus says in the same way that the vineyard would be taken from those wicked, miserable wretches, those tenants, so too would the kingdom of God be taken away from Israel and from the Jewish leaders and be given to a different people. If the nation of Israel and its leaders refuse to acknowledge God's Son as the one sent from heaven to deal with man's sin problem, then God would remove that which he entrusted to them, which is the message of the kingdom of God. He would remove that and give it to another, another people. And who is that people to whom the kingdom of God would be entrusted to? Well, we learn in New Testament, it's the church. The church, those that name the name of Christ and have acknowledged him as the only one that can bring a fallen humanity back into a right relationship with God. It's the church that is now entrusted with the words of eternal life, and called to make known the plan of God and be a beacon of light, just as Israel was supposed to be, to be a beacon of light into the entire world, the church. And Jesus then, he culminates his teaching. He says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
And so the choice before Jesus' listeners is the same choice that is before each one of us and everyone that has ever lived on the earth. The choice that is before the listeners is this. How will they respond to that stone that is spoken of there in verse 44? Of course, the stone is Christ. And a person's response to Christ will determine Christ's response to that person. We can either fall on the stone and allow him to break us in complete and humble dependence, as it says there, fall on the stone will be broken to pieces, or we can continue to rebel and demand our own way as the teachers were doing in Jesus' day, the tenants were doing in the parable's day, uh, in the parable that we have here, continue to reject, continue to rebel, demand our own way, and ultimately reap the consequences of that rebellion. And if we do that, as it says there, the stone will fall upon us in the final judgment. That's the choice that is put before all the world, and each one of us in particular. Because you can think of the whole world out there. Think about yourself this morning. That's the choice that is put before you and everyone else that will ever live. That's the question that will be posed to each of us when we come to the end of our days. The question is this, what did you do with my son? Did you receive my son, the invitation to forgiveness of your sins? Did you submit yourself to his lordship or did you demand your own way and determine that he had no place in your life? What did you do with my son? Listen, the scripture is very, very clear. There is no doubt about this in the scripture. Now, you don't have to believe the Bible, but the Bible teaches this. And what the Bible teaches is that every knee will bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said this. He said, I have sworn by myself, and the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and it will not turn back, that to me, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The New Testament apostle Paul clarifies that, lest you walk away just thinking, well, it just means God out there or something. He clarifies it and makes it specific. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking about Jesus, read the passage, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Now, that obeisance will either be in humble brokenness or with stubborn reluctance. But every human being that has ever lived on this earth will acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I understand those are heavy words. And hopefully they are impacting you this morning the same way they were intended to impact the people that were listening to Jesus that day 2,000 years ago. And hopefully they'll leave you this morning asking yourself the same question those people should have been asking. Am I right with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I right with him? That was their intention when Jesus shared them then. It's his intention now. And sadly, in the passage we're looking at, they did not have their desired impact on the religious leaders to whom they were directed. Look at verse 45. It says, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held Jesus to be a prophet. So they perceive he's speaking about them, but rather 
Then hearing his words and responding in repentance for the hardness of heart they previously demonstrated by refusing to recognize Jesus for who he was, rather than repenting, what they do instead is dig in their heels. And in fact, as it says there in verse 46, if it wasn't for the crowds that were present, they would have done something right then. They would have arrested Jesus right then and dealt with him. But as it says in the verse, fearing the crowds, they instead went away and they waited for a more opportune time. We know, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that that more opportune time is going to be two days, three days from now at the, the, uh, when Jesus is praying in the garden. It's nighttime. The crowds have all gone to bed and Jesus is just there with a few disciples and an army comes in and takes him. They arrest him and they will ultimately crucify him. And I, I think the thing that we can walk away with here this morning is this, how dangerous and destructive, self-destructive, a hard heart and a rebellious heart can be. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never come to the cross of Christ, you've never looked to him for the forgiveness of your sin, well, the hardness of heart is, you know what, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. I can do it on my own. Who's this guy to tell me? Some man that lived 2,000 years ago, whatever it may be. Every one of us has to come to the foot of the cross and recognize that Jesus Christ was put on the cross to forgive your sins and that there was no other way your sins could be paid for. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Either accept the gift or reject the gift. And if you're hard of heart, you run the risk of dealing with the consequences of rejecting the gift. That's for the unbeliever. Now, most of us in here, probably, it's church, most of us in here have gathered because we are believers. We've come to the foot of the cross. We've recognized our need for a Savior, and we confess that Jesus Christ alone is that Savior. I still think this passage speaks to us today because it speaks to us about the dangers of rebelling and hardening our hearts against the voice of the Lord. And believers can do that too. And so as God speaks into your life about an area of your life, how do you respond to the Lord? Do you respond essentially by saying this, you don't have any right to tell me. You don't have any right to come here and collect the rent. You don't have any right to lord over me. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm my own person. If that's your response, then you are responding with a hard heart to the voice of the Lord. And it's a very dangerous and self-destructive thing to do so. And so I, can I just exhort you the same thing that I exhort myself? No matter how big or how little it is that God is speaking to you about an area of your life, respond in obedience to what he's saying. Because it's some big thing and it's hard and it's difficult and I don't know how I'm going to do it. Gather around with the other saints and say, look, I want to respond in obedience to the Lord. Would you help me with this? Would you be here in the process of this with me? But sometimes when it's a little thing, we think, ah, it's no big deal. And we begin to question whether God has any right to ask that of me. God, I've given you 95% of my life, and now you want five more percent of my life? And his response is simply, am I your Lord? Every area of your life. And when God puts his finger on an area of our lives, why does he do that? He does it for our good. That's the only reason he does it. He does it for our good. Sometimes we walk away and we think he does it because he doesn't want me to have any fun. He does it because he's mean. You know, he does it because of this. He does it because of that. But ultimately, he does it so that you can be more transformed into the image of his son 
And by being more transformed into the image of his son, you bring glory to the Father. And that's what you were created for. And so he does it for our good. So when God speaks into your life, may I encourage you, allow him to break you in every area of your life. Submit yourself to him in every area of your life with humility so that you might experience all the joy and the peace that he desires for you to possess. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, I think I prayed this earlier. That's easier for us to say than it is to do. And so, Lord, I certainly I acknowledge that. Lord, we are an independent people that want things our way. And it's not uncommon for us to question what right you have uh, to speak about certain areas of our lives and demand the fruit, so to speak, of uh, being a new creation in Christ. And So, Lord, I just pray that you would bring us to the place where our hearts are humble before you, where we're open to receive whatever it is you might want to say, where we're ready for you to put your finger on certain areas of our lives. Lord, I pray that as a body of believers, Lord, that we would all be running so hard after you that we would be an encouragement to to one another. You can do this. Let's run the race together. And together, Lord, we would be advancing forward in that sanctification that you want to do in each one of us. And so knit our hearts together, Lord, where one is weak and one is struggling and where the will doesn't seem to be there. Lord, may they be encouraged by another brother or sister that is running hard at that particular time, and vice versa as the days go by. Give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive from you. And Lord, we pray for those that have yet to believe. Lord, would you be so kind as to open up their eyes. Lord, we know that the enemy seeks to deceive and to steal away that seed. Lord, we pray that the seed would go down deep, it would be planted, and much fruit, eternal life, would be born in that person's heart. And Lord, we believe these are prayers according to your will. And we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.